When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything, a new podcast about exploring which way is up in a world that's upside down. We're exploring how to thrive in a world that's gone mad. And we're doing that by looking at a couple specific areas, remapping culture and rebuilding leadership. Last week, we explored the concept of a liminal age, and we define a liminal age as a period of seismic, systemic, and cultural change that both signals the passing of what was and sparks the emergence of what's next. Previously shared assumptions, values, means, and ends are all discarded and or redefined in a liminal age. And guess what comes? Social anxiety and conflict fill the vacuum until a new consensus is formed. Now, what does all that mean? Well, we like to use the airport illustration. Now, an airport is a space that doesn't necessarily serve itself. It's to get people from where they were to where they're going. And an airport can be a place where there's high anxiety as people are on busy schedules. But imagine a moment where flights are canceled, luggage is lost, restaurants are closing at random, and everyone wants to be somewhere else. That's how Mm. we think of a liminal age. Now, we live in a post-everything culture that's causing so much change. We're in a post-Christian context. We're post-sexual revolution, post-9-11, and most recently post pandemic. We are in an in-between space. Last week, we discussed three big symptoms of living in a liminal age. One, loneliness. Two, a loss of capacity. And lastly, a disorientation. Right, exactly. And so that is how we experience this liminal age and what it's like to walk through life in this period that we're in, and in a way that I hope has been really validating of your experience as well as very gosh, explanatory. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of jump into like, what are the underlying causes of that? And so everything that follows here and that we're going to talk about today, you know, John, when you said that we're in a post everything world and a a post-Christian world, that's language that kind of gets thrown around a lot and not defined very well. And so before we jump into the, the three major disruptions that are causing the experience that we talked about last time, I think it's important for us to define a couple terms here. What we are talking about is this word that's been overused and underdefined of secularization. Now, what is the secular age that we live in? Mark Sayers would say, um, and he's a brilliant Australian pastor and writer, author, he says that secularization and secular society culture is the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. It's the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. Interestingly, a lot of people use this word to say that this is an absence of Christianity, or an absence of religion, maybe more generally. But I think he's dead on when he says it's actually a Christian heresy, right? Interesting. Because it is co-opting a lot of the values or a lot of the ends, the telosses, and the social architecture of Christendom, but it's filling it with new beliefs and values. And in this case, and what we're talking about in the Western world, and historically speaking, that very much kind of revolves around this idea of, of individualism, right? It is the pursuit of the king with me as the king. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't quite work out 
there's a dissonance there that people, even if they can't name it, they feel it because it's the equivalent of trying to run Windows on a Mac, which is just sad because the Apple OS is just so much better than Windows in every way. And that is my bias showing, but it's not made for it. The hardware and the software don't line up. Now, there are aspects of individualism that absolutely is stemming from Christianity, but it fails to produce the particular cultural change that the secular worldview is hoping for. And so because of that, what we're talking about today is the way that that focus has shifted to also changing the hardware to varying degrees of emphasis. It's not just trying to replace or co-opt Christendom with individualist beliefs. It's actually trying to dismantle the things that hold those beliefs as well. Interesting. So we're talking about having the kingdom with me as the king. Mm -hmm. How did we get to that being the mindset? Yeah. So this is a massive big picture overview and it's going to leave things out. But if you consider the fifth to the middle of the 20th century, you know, kind of Christendom in general, I don't want to describe this as this was when Christian culture was primary in the West, right? Because it's not necessarily or fully a Christian culture because Western society has always been more or less virtuous depending on the time, the place, the ethical dimension we're talking about. But we did have a consensus around something. We enjoyed a near universal social consensus that we should organize ourselves according to Christian virtue. And we should seek to cultivate it in every sphere of life because this is king and kingdom. Agreed. So to varying degrees of success and failure, we at least actually agreed on implicitly and assumed we should live in light of king and kingdom and our hardware and our software aligned in that way. We started to see that maybe if that's Christendom, like phase one of entering into a liminal age was very much in the mid 60s. You can disagree on when the phase one kind of ended or started to shift. I'd say 2012, but you could probably say as early as 2008. But phase one was an attempt to kind of keep the hardware, the institutions, but replace the software. And that was trying to keep your Mac and upload Windows instead of the Mac OS. And the Windows equivalent was individualism. It is a taking of the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, the intrinsic good and value of individual people, image bearers, right? And we're going to like kind of hop that up on steroids and say, well, actually autonomy is what we're made for and self-definition is our means. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. So hold on to that. Independence rather than interdependence. That is a fantastic way of, of stating. You leave the home and you go off on your own to well, not just to get your own job and start a household, to figure out who you are. You go on a process of self-discovery and self-definition. That's a really recent phenomenon when you're looking this far out, historically speaking. And so phase two, this started to change because in 2012, and again, you could go to early as 2008, you started to see a questioning and a very intentional dismantling of the hardware. And by that, I mean institutions, but like this is where it starts getting kind of in, in a gray area here because there's no real answer to replace it. It's kind of like we're thinking, you know, we can just have Windows. We don't need actually need hardware. It's nonsensical. That's going to make more sense as we go here, right? There's no answer to what do we replace institutions with? 
at least not an intentional one, but we have found a replacement in the process, which we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, running the scan on my computer and figuring out what viruses are there. You're waiting and you're waiting. As we're scanning here, what are the specific systemic hardware disruptions that have brought us or catapulted us into liminality? I think the primary catalyst between phase one and two has been social media. And social media yeah, platforms, yeah. specifically functioning as counterfeit institutions. Now, John, I don't know if you remember when you first made your own Facebook profile, but it was I my do. freshman year in college. And so you're a few years older than me. So it's probably like toward the end of college, maybe right after you get done. No, I had to wait. I was out of college. So I had to wait until they opened up Facebook for non-college students. So I Man. think that was like 2006. I, I got my first Facebook page, but I was on MySpace before that. Oh, 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 I miss Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a good guy. <laughs> Tom was a good guy. Really needs a new profile pic. But anyway, God, that was a deep cut. I'm sorry if that made no sense to you. Anyway, but there's a difference even between social media pre-2010, 2012, and social media since then. And that's because there's been a, a change in our relationship because social media now is functioning. The platforms themselves are functioning as counterfeit institutions. Here's what I mean by that. Talk about that. Yeah, so... I'm going to lose my mind, John, if I hear somebody else make the historical analogy to our time and place and social media with the printing press, right? Oh, talk about that. That sounds good. Now, if you know your history, it makes sense that some people would make that analogy because if you know your history, in a lot of ways, it was not just Martin Luther. It was also the fact that Martin Luther came about and existed and did what he did after the printing press had been invented. And so it was those ideas that were able to go out at scale and at a speed that really changed things very radically. And that is an analogy, but that reduces what we're talking about when we talk about social media functioning as counterfeit institutions, because this is not just an evolution of scale and speed. Counterfeit institutions and what social media is doing, and starting with Facebook especially, what they're doing is they're promising all the benefits of an institution with none of the constraints. Mm. This is a changing of the hardware based on individualism's software. Mm -hmm. This oh. is a redefinition of institutions according to the beliefs of individualism, which is no constraint, right? Autonomy, but you still want your benefits. So you still want to have your community and eat it too. Uh, well, have your cake and eat it too. You get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean there aren't constraints. It just means... In the case of social media platforms, they are hidden by design and in various different ways, depending on the platform. And there are costs to that. There are trade-offs. And if you're thinking like, I'm actually not that active on social media, this point actually may not apply to me. It does, because even if you're not on social media at all, it still has impacted and influenced society indirectly in similar ways that institutions have influenced society. For example, if you've been following any of the news around the Twitter being acquired by Elon Musk, you know that the people most mad about this and most fearing change are journalists because Twitter has been the counterfeit institution of choice for journalists and they have been operating in many ways in echo chambers. So interesting. Which is why if you're watching the news or whether it's local news, cable news or whatever else, the quote unquote social media reaction is an essential part of most stories. Like, how are people reacting to this news? Like, I don't care. Exactly. I don't care if somebody's grandma thinks this is a good idea or a bad idea. Like, it's just weird, right? But it's in the water now. 
And we yes. don't even realize, like, it's just become part of our experience of, of information intake. Yeah, I can handle it on ESPN if they show what a famous basketball player says about a sporting event. But the local news stories where someone totally random, they're just grabbing a tweet. I, you know, I want your opinion. I want to know the, yeah. opinion of the facts. Yeah. But I think this is why things have been pretty tumultuous for the last 10 years. I mean, it's felt like politics have been at war, a dumpster fire since 2012. And there's good reason for that. I mean, some specific things have happened. Mm. First of all, Facebook made a switch from a chronological news feed to mm. an algorithmic curated newsfeed in September of 2011. Do you remember that? Do you remember when that happened? Yeah, I remember. That was really the turning point of what I was talking about earlier in terms of the experience of social media, like what it felt like to be on Facebook, the kinds of people, what your interactions were like, the topics discussed, not just how it was discussed, but just the content itself. It changed dramatically. Yeah, it was interesting. I do remember that people were frustrated because they looked at Facebook like as a way to keep up with their friends. So they mm -hmm. could literally go through and just check off each of their friends what they had done. But now they had to go searching for what their friends had done. Mm -hmm. uh, so not only is that the switch to the algorithm, but also in 2014, three years later, smartphone market penetration reached 50%. So here we mm -hmm. are, 2011 social media changes, 2014 smartphones are in half of the hands of the population. And then we have the 2016 presidential election cycle, which was the first one to happen since those two big changes. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not coincidental that that was a dumpster fire as well. <laughs> so, uh, so fascinating. But Brad, what else was disrupted? How does social media caused this dumpster fire to spread beyond the dumpster. Yeah, the combination, that intersection of going from chronological to algorithmic curation of information and the constant instant access reaching a tipping point, everybody having instant access to anything and everything information content-wise in their pocket has changed things in three really huge ways. The first is this. We are now subjected to a level of information oversaturation that we have never experienced before. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think transcends institutional distrust and skepticism of media, but it feeds into all of it because it's not just the access to information, but that information ecosystem is now cluttered. Uh, we were talking about somebody's grandma having an opinion on a news story or whoever winning the Super Bowl, handing everybody the equivalent of a global megaphone makes it impossible to extract meaning from data or prioritize sources. That's because on a physiological level, we are not capable of processing or sorting through that much content, that much data that quickly. It actually overwhelms our neurological ability to process. It's, it's trying to shove way too much water through a pipe and it just bursts, breaks our yes. brains in a way. Yeah. Everyone has a voice. Hooray. Everyone has a voice. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Like pros and cons, careful what you wish for. Um, and so that's an ecosystem in which we can't do our own research on everything and we never have been able to. And that is something that we have traditionally relied on institutions for. You have to trust 
or assume something. You have to trust something's based on the credibility or the authority of something or someone outside of yourself. That takes work, right? And in the information environment that we're swimming in now, when you are overwhelmed by that oversaturation, you will gravitate toward trusting two things, relational networks and information convenience. That's the social component and the media component, respectively. This is why social media is so, it's addictive and it's also dangerous because it taps into something about the way we are wired and made that is part of our design, but it shapes us in ways that we're not even aware of. But it didn't come from nowhere. I mean, I think there was a buildup with the boomers and the Gen X. Definitely. You know, looking back at that, they were discipled. They were formed in their worldview and began to even associate with particular tribes with the advent of cable news, with the saturation of radio. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the influence that Rush Limbaugh had in the 90s versus the influence that Howard Stern had in that same decade. Mm-hmm. And then you have the buildup of that. And then you get to the millennials and Gen Z and social media takes over. But the only way that you can sort through everyone having a voice is there has to be some way to sort through that. And you can't Mm -hmm. do it all. Cue the algorithmic curation. Mm. But here's the interesting thing. A lot of people do not trust institutions. They say they're untrustworthy. But that algorithm, that filter is actually less transparent than most institutions, even if they're somewhat opaque. Yet we Mm -hmm. trust that curation more than we do an institution. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you followed the Facebook hearings, well, I think it was Facebook and Twitter both, right? Software engineers and, and executives from Facebook were testifying before Congress. And when asked about how they design or tweak the algorithm towards certain ends, the response was like, we actually don't fully understand how the algorithm works. <laughs> That's scary. It, it had a level of complexity that the way that they introduced changes was to do something like they thought might have that effect, but then they would limit the changes of that algorithm to different parts of the population and sections of user to have a control in a variable group and compare the effect it had. I'm trying to like wrap my brain around how that would be acceptable to any engineer outside of writing that algorithm. That's like, that is heresy. That's blasphemy for engineering. But yeah, we need to cue John Connor. If you yeah, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Skynet is just days away yeah. from self-consciousness. But the point we're trying to make with this is that there is a really understandable need for some kind of curation. That actually is a function institutions have performed historically. But hmm. when you have the scale, the global scale that social media platforms do, and you're disembodying the institution into something that is a counterfeit kind of made in our image thereof, you have to have some way of curating and organizing that information. But the algorithm is not transparent. It doesn't have the transparency that institutions actually do because that is the secret sauce. That's what makes Facebook Facebook. It's not what you see on the screen in terms of the design or the aesthetic. It's the stuff that's operating in the background. And that's intellectual property. You're never going to get to see that, right? Okay, so that's the first one. Information oversaturation. The second is... We actually wrestled a while, John, with how to, how to like label this swirling piece, but we're going to call this systemic individualism. You are familiar with systemic, all kinds of things right now, but systemic individualism has this huge impact 
in ways that if you're familiar with Inside, it's kind of a comedy part, documentary part, really depressing comedy by Bo Burnham. And it's a satire around like what it's like to record a comedy special during the pandemic, during lockdowns. And it's also a commentary on social media and our very online culture. And one of the parts of it, he says, all human interaction should be contained in the much more safe, much more real interior digital space. The outside world, the non-digital world, is merely a theatrical space in which one stages and records content for the much more real, much more vital digital space. One should only engage with the outside world as one engages with a coal mine. Suit up, gather what is needed, and return to the surface. Wow. What he's articulating there is in the systematizing of our individualism, and this is what the architecture of social media platforms are, it has the effect of turning inside out and upside down our posture toward the physical reality. So the virtual reality becomes primary. That that feeds into how you view the communities, the networks, the relationships, and yes, the institutions that you are involved in. So if you're a Christian, you go to church, it starts to have the impact that your social media culture that you're involved in actually starts to backfill and filter into your church and your community, where that becomes more important and more formative and shaping than what's happening in your local church. Mm. So here's how that works. If you're a member of an institution, if you're a member of a church, if you are participating in, like even in your marriage, things that you experience online are going to filter into that. And that fundamentally backfills such that what used to happen where we would receive our identity, our dignity, value, and worth, we'd be formed by our institutions in a given direction. Now we have this expectation that we are achieving our dignity, value, and worth. And so when you're receiving that from the counterfeit institution of social media, that you're supposed to achieve this everywhere, you're supposed to perform, it changes the way that you relate to everybody else in the institution. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think what you're saying is when we share a story on Facebook or when we you know, share a reel that's somebody else's, we're saying something about who we believe we are and what group we're part of. It's an identity. It's a, an identity action. Mm. And so as we share those things, even there's something psychological that we think is happening where we're expressing to the world who we think we are and what we choose to associate with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like a good example of this that I've used in terms of how this works out in the local church is when we first started the table six and a half years ago now, or before that point, the typical guest or visitor walking in through the front doors of a church would walk in expecting to be shaped and formed by the church. That was your filter when you were quote unquote church shopping was what church embodies the vision, the direction that in terms of like what scripture says, something outside of me that I want to become and grow into, that I want to be sanctified toward. Now, and since we really, right around 2016, I've noticed this, now the typical visitor or guest coming in through the front doors of your church expects the church to be shaped and formed by their opinions and their perspective. It has turned upside down the formational direction in our relationship to local institutions. Absolutely. That's so true. And so that's not just the people coming through the doors, like leaders of institutions, uh, Yuval Levin, who you will hear us use his name so much over the course of this podcast, has made the point in his book, uh, A Time to Build, that institutional leaders, somewhere along the lines, around the same timeline that we're talking about, 
went from viewing their leadership roles within an institution from one of responsibility, especially like responsibility to the people who make up the institution, the mission, the purpose of the institution, its history and context, all of that, to from responsibility to performance and treating the institutions like platforms for their mm. achieving dignity, value, and worth, for, for their achieving and succeeding. The institution serves them instead of the other way around. That is social media. It's systemic individualism in the institution. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo. Now, it's not like no human being ever performed until social media exists, right? This is just like lighting that on fire and injecting it with nitrous. And so it's just an accelerant that has catapulted us down that path so much further and faster than we had been previously. Okay, that's number two. Here's the third and final one of this counterfeit institutions, social media, how it has changed this. And this is contextual flattening. What's that mean? It used to be that a given audience, whatever the content is that we're talking about, whether it's audio, it's written content, film, movies, TV, whatever it is, that a given audience would hear and read content in light of context. So that relationship between content and context has been very tight, historically speaking. And by context, I mean the time it was written, the place, the person, the background, the occasion, the social cultural values that existed in that time and place. All of these things are part of context. And what social media does in various different ways, depending on the platform, is it disembodies content from context. And that, hmm. that seriously jacks up our ability to accurately understand and interpret the content itself. And it doesn't just stay, and this is what we mean by contextual flattening, is it doesn't just stay, well, now that's how I read things on my phone. It's not just digital. It bleeds into and backfills into all of life. The digital spaces where we are formed and shaped toward that end to flatten context, that bleeds into our physical places and how we view our context in our lives. I got an example here. Yes. That's really like vague and conceptual in the clouds. So if you're on Twitter and you're a Christian, if you're engaged with Christian Twitter, you probably saw in mid to late November that there was a lot of hoopla around Christian nationalism. And it came to a head during that time. And that, that actually probably started, I think, in August, September with the publishing of, of a book on, on that topic. It caused a stir. There are people in my own church at the table who had questions and concerns about that. I addressed it as part of a sermon at one point. And it feels like a really big deal. It occupies our thoughts. Because of how much space it took up on social media. Exactly. Recently, Ryan Burge, who's a political scientist and statistician, he is a big fan of data and polls at Eastern Illinois University. He tweeted recently, a reality check, he says, about the discourse on Twitter in real life. And, and here, here are a couple statistics. 55% of people have heard or read nothing at all about Christian nationalism. <laughs> 55%. Only 29% of the general population have a favorable or unfavorable view of the concept. In other words, 71% are neutral in some way. There are only 29% who have an opinion one way or another, okay? Only 5% were favorable toward Christian nationalism. Only 5% of people were actually saying, let's do this. Christian yes. nationalism is a good thing. Interesting. You would have thought the whole world 
was yeah. leaning that way. Yeah. If you ask a lot of people where I live, what is a, a major threat inside the church? It would be the top of the list. Except only 5% of total people are favorable toward Christian nationalism. That puts things into perspective. It totally does. I'll admit, I was engaged with this topic on Twitter. Like, I was pretty active and have some opinions. I know that's surprising to anybody. I read your opinions. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. (laughs) You don't have to tell me what you thought of them. But, like, that is stunning to me, personally. Yeah. Well, it's so fascinating because what happens when the algorithm cues our attention is we're not actually connected to real reality. And here's what I mean by that. There's really a blurring on context and content. There's a blurring that happens Hmm. that changes our ability to actually discern what's happening in the real world and the actual needs that others have and we have. And things that aren't as urgent feel urgent because they're showing up in our algorithmic feed. What Hmm. that leads to is that we struggle to know where to give our attention. We struggle to know uh, when we should make a decision that something's urgent. You can see our last podcast on that where we talked about decision-making fatigue and agency amnesia. And we actually don't have an effect in the real world. So here's an example. We have so many organizations in our area that you could donate time, one time a week, Mm. one hour a week, to help someone in need at the Broward Outreach Center that helps the homeless. Or let's say that we started a tutoring program for kids that were at risk. What a great way to spend your time. Mm. But we all feel that we don't have time to do those things because the internet needs me and I need it. I need to go home and argue on Twitter instead of making a difference with someone when I'm sitting face to face with them. You know, John, if you ask somebody hey, which do you think is more important? They're going to say the kid that needs a tutor. They're not going to say the internet needs me. We still have at least enough perspective, thank God, to be like, no, that's actually stupid. That's a dumb idea. But we don't function that way. Exactly, exactly. I think it was from The Social Dilemma, the documentary about social media, where they made the really helpful point that attention is a finite resource. And when our attention is spent on a digital context... We don't have attention to notice the context that we're in. And so it's not a conscious or intentional thing that you're describing. This is something that is happening despite and without our buy-in. Yeah, even if we're aware of the concept, it doesn't mean that we've actually made a change in our lives because of the concept. Yeah, absolutely. John, can you take that same principle and and talk about implications for leaders, either of institutions, organizations, teams, people, because that's a big part of what we want to do in this podcast. And you made a really great point about the tension that that creates for leaders. Yeah. So if you're a leader, you might feel this tension around the fact that you are leading and speaking and motivating people right in front of you. And yet there's a performative factor where it's not just the people in front of you. Mm. So for instance, Brad and I, we speak every week. We teach the Bible every week in our churches. There's a sense where we're aware that when that sermon gets out on the internet, anyone or everyone who might be watching or listening or reading can respond to it. And they're probably not going to look at the context of our words 
And so even on this podcast, there's been a couple of times mm. where we say like, here's where we're coming from with this. We're not saying that this is the case in every situation <laughs> because we know that there's contextual flattening going on. And mm. so what happens is that forces a leader not to be able to speak generally about anything, but actually to anticipate what every person might say from every different perspective and every objection and every exception. And that's just exhausting. Otherwise, if you don't do that, you're perceived as like marginalizing or using your words in a way that might hurt people when you're like, no, I'm speaking just specifically to this in this context. That doesn't really exist anymore. We're aware that everyone and anyone is watching. Yeah. And it wasn't that before we never anticipated how someone might hear us, right? Or true. Or we true. didn't try to actively consider the context. But it's the difference between like, okay, there are probably three likely ways I could be heard, three likely contexts here that I need to be actively considering. That's very different from having to consider and keep in mind all of the context, all yes. of the things that people are engaged in or talking about or experiencing. And the way that the listener or reader or viewer now does not feel any responsibility to consider the context of the speaker or the communicator, or the leader, that creates this really bad death spiral for misunderstanding. <laughs> like it just exactly. makes it so much harder to communicate and that can be paralyzing. Very true. Man. Okay. So these kind of three set points that we just talked about, this is all under this heading of like social media as a counterfeit institution. When I was talking earlier about this phase two of this liminal age, that's saying, you know, we're not just going to replace the software of Christendom. We want to replace the hardware too, or we want to do away with the hardware. And so we don't have an answer of like what we're going to replace that with. That's because the replacement has become social media. That has been the thing that has a counterfeit. It's trying to leverage the good that institutions provided and fulfill that role, but it's without actually being an institution. And it doesn't do it fully because this has become the functional replacement. It's been a counterfeit. Like we didn't realize that social media has started to become a counterfeit institution and replacement thereof. Yeah. We just thought there was a cool guy named Tom who wanted to be our friend. And then, yeah. Uh, we didn't re and I don't think social media was functioning as a counterfeit institution until that period between like 2011 and 2014. That's where the shift happened. It changed our experience of social media and also therefore our relationship to it. But it wasn't obvious. We had no idea that that would have that impact. That's just the first one. Each of these build on the other and are shorter. So don't worry. This one will go a little bit quicker. But the second major disruption that we are in the midst of is generational turnover. I love the way you know, Mark Sayers not too long ago in his Rebuilders podcast actually described this as the, the boomer apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we are seeing a generation, the boomers, who are retiring significantly later than their parents. And therefore, they have maintained positions in leadership and management in the corporate world and in vocations far longer. And what that means as the next generation, the you know Gen X and millennials have had to wait longer than they did before moving up that ladder. And so it has been a slow and there's some pent up expectation along those lines. So there's not just that pent up expectation that involves a generational switch in values and norms that is operating as a kind of perfect storm in this particular generational turnover. Yeah. And Zennials, just in the middle, we're just watching this happen. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of like, it's like well, watching. A, it's like a little kid watching a street fight between the boomers and the millennials here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that sounds about right. So, how that is different right now is that globalism. If you're thinking about like economically and politically, the seeker-sensitive church growth movement that gave us the non-denominational movement and is you know mega churches did not exist before then. Like all of that is the fruit of that seeker-sensitive church growth movement. Consumerism itself attitudes and postures toward the internet, like all of those are switching from a generation that considered them an innovation and a change and something that's new to one that grew up with all of those things as the norm. Wow. That, that's a major development. It's a massive shift that's been delayed, like I said, because boomers have been living longer and retiring later. And that's a lot of pent up energy and momentum that's driving behind that. Now, that is affecting things in ways that you would not expect, especially culturally. So then let's talk about Gen Z. We've talked about boomers and millennials. We've left out Gen X and Zennials, but here's Gen Z. Demographers are saying that Gen Z is basically hold my bear compared to millennials. Mm. Things are changing so quickly that it's going to be hard to categorize any coming generation maybe starting with Gen Z, but definitely after them. Gen Z is the first digital native whose normal has been shaped by social media. So the social media's exponential diversity, the fact that social media exposes us to far more than anything we can do when we just walk down our street or visit our city hall, mm. uh, being universal is more normal than being local and embodied. And so Gen Z, as we transitioning toward this thing that's next, that's their normal. That's the only thing that they've ever mm. known. Mm. Now, all this is happening at the same time, and we're starting to see some things. We're starting to see the long-term effects, the long-term fruit of the success of boomers, and it's been somewhat disappointing. Yeah. Each of these compound one another, and it'll be even more obvious with this third point, which is one of the biggest disruptions has been economic disillusionment. I remember hearing, I can't remember who this was, but I remember hearing somebody say that for millennials and especially Gen Z, but for millennials, 9-11 was not nearly as significant of a landmark event in terms of shaping their perspective on the world nearly so much as the 2008 housing market crash. Interesting. Right. And really, unfortunately, like I served in the National Guard for 11 years, the Army National Guard, and I enlisted that December after 9-11, my senior year of high school. That's going to date me for sure, if nothing else has already. <laughs> it was significant for me. But what was interesting about all of the global conflict that the U.S. military has been involved in since then is unlike any previous war, most of American society was not directly engaged. You know, we didn't have a draft and there was no need to pitch in or help out on a country national wide level like we saw in World War II. That meant it just didn't impact people nearly as much as finding out as a recent college graduate that you are not going to be able to buy your first house before you turn mm -hmm. 25, never mind before you turned 30. That American dream that everybody told you is what going to college and taking out all of these loans will put you on the path toward suddenly dissolves overnight. Like, wow. It's not an accident that the Occupy Wall Street movement 
was largely a millennial-led movement. And it's representative of this kind of massive economic and social disappointment that is coming home to roost. And I think we're still feeling those effects, whether we're talking about the promises of globalism, the dot-com boom, the housing market, all of these are turning out to be more catastrophically fragile than we were told when growing up. We can't rely on them. That is a ground shifting underneath your feet kind of experience. And so again, let's connect this to the previous point about generational transition. The boomer experience we're learning now is not the norm. It was an exception. We can't rely on that, that kind of life trajectory anymore. And so this kind of explains, I think, a bit about why so many, especially young people are in a kind of burn it down frustration because that is this disappointment coming out at scale. Yeah. It, it all adds up. So you see how these compound on each other, John? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, things have been changing so much, particularly over the past three to five years. It has been nothing but just learning. Which way's up? Over the last three to five years, nothing but learning. And we're learning because we're looking at the last three to five decades and the implications of those decades and what the trade-offs were and what it's costing us. And we have not even begun to understand what it's going to look like to recover from that, to envision a future, to dream about what is next beyond the competing narratives and competing utopias that we see. Yeah, we're still very much in that early processing phase of like, wow, it's not just that it's being delayed. It probably won't even happen. And what do we do with that? With all of this reordering, yeah, that's an understandable frustration. Well, we've talked about there's being two major implications or effects of those disruptions. In other words, what are the effects of liminality? Yeah. So everything that's pouring in all these changes, there's an acceleration of change. The world is going to change faster and faster. It's going to create some instability, even in how we think about ourselves and what it means to be a human being. And obviously we've seen the negative polarization where people on the extremes can't even talk to each other, be in the same room. You know, why can't we all just get along? Well, the answer is because there are fewer and fewer overlapping assumptions and shared narratives so everything mm. becomes a struggle for what it means to be human, for what it means to mm. be in reality. Everything's an existential struggle over identity and meaning itself, which mm. is heavy, no pressure. And here's how that's taking shape, at least for right now. Brad, tell us about yeah. Charles Hapgood. Okay, so if those three things were the, the rock that's been thrown into the pond we need to talk about the ripple effects. Like what has those rocks that we've thrown into the pond, what have been the ripples that have flowed out from that? To illustrate this, I'll call this the Charles Hapgood theory of realignment. If you've never heard the name okay. Charles Hapgood, that doesn't surprise me. It's not even like a very, he's not, he, he, was, he was wrong, basically. Charles Hapgood had a theory for how the dinosaurs died out and how the prehistoric ages ended and human and mammal diversity began taking over the world. That theory is that at some point in prehistory, the poles, the North and South Poles, the magnetic fields flipped suddenly. They turned upside down. The North Pole, the magnetic 
pole that is up there became the South Pole and vice versa. And we don't realize that like the plant and animal life on the planet has a lot more alignment and and dependence on those magnetic fields than we think. And the flipping meant that the earth was bombarded with radiation that we were used to being protected from. And it meant that migratory patterns of birds that were used to, you know, depending on those magnetic fields, they get scrambled and they start going in off in different directions. And it's not a reliable pattern of migration. So they suffer for that. It caused all of this chaos. And so this is a helpful analogy because what we just saw was almost this weird reversal of poles culturally and socially because of the three things we just talked about. And what that causes and affects is this radical sorting. Here's what I mean by that. Michael Graham wrote a fantastic article over at Mirror Orthodoxy a couple of years ago now, which is crazy that's that long, or actually a year and a half ago, somewhere in there, called The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. And he said and applied what we're talking about here within evangelicalism in the United States, and that there are kind of new coalitions that are starting to become clear after this fracturing. And so people are leaving one church and going to another, not for theological disagreements or changes in doctrine, but because of cultural and political ones. And so you're seeing this affect institutions. And if you're listening to this, and this is at all comforting or validating for you, you've probably lost a lot of friends over the last few years. You maybe even have gained some as a result of this sorting. This is what we're talking about. So that sorting and everything we're talking about is leading to this kind of confusion and erosion of institutions. And their institutions are not serving or functioning in the role that they have been for forever. That's part of this liminal age. So here are the two ways that's impacting it, right? What we're seeing is two things. Number one is a rise of social contagions and viral ideologies. Okay. The erosion of mediating institutions and the distrust of leaders is leading to the equivalent around ideologies and ideas of driving a car without brakes. <clears throat> ideologies become social contagions more quickly. They spread more quickly and easily because there are no institutions that are functioning as the social equivalent of a fire break, right? Because that's where the pros and cons of a change of a cultural shift might get worked out. It's almost like a laboratory. And without that, because that's not happening in institutions, it's happening in counterfeit institutions on social media, now instead of individuals testing out these ideologies within institutions or small groups of people, society writ large is trying it on and tossing it out at breakneck speed, right? Society is not built or organized around that. Society, especially in the West, has been built around the existence of institutions operating in that capacity. And without are using them in that way, it just, it spreads like wildfire. And so we are being subjected to change faster than we ever have before. Again, this is why I'm going to lose my mind if I hear somebody else talk about social media as the new printing press. Like, it's yeah. different. It makes us like, I don't know if you remember Bill Murray and What About Bob, where he talks about all his anxiety issues in the office at the beginning of the movie. But that's what we are like, not to take that lightly at all, but to say, yeah, it really is this way. We really yeah. feel anxious about everything. What can we know for sure? Well, it doesn't feel like we can know anything for sure. So if I can't know anything for sure, there's no way to keep up. So I'm just going to either be apathetic or anxious. And I choose apathy. To your point, I first got onto Twitter. I've typically been on Facebook before this, but got onto Twitter in March of 2020. Literally, as the lockdown happened, I'm like, I just want to be connected with people. And the first thing I noticed was, oh my gosh, 
this is where so much of the stuff I've been seeing as a pastor is coming from. Like somebody would hear a sermon that I gave or would come to me with a issue or some kind of idea or cultural disconnect. And I'd be like, where is this coming from? Because mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. And as soon as I got on Twitter, I'm like, oh, this is where it's coming from. Right. And the reason is on Twitter, you think the world is always burning. Yeah. Right? Yes. Because you're connected yes. everywhere. So there's always a problem. There's always an issue. There's always a dumpster fire happening that if you're not anxious or apathetic, you're hypervigilant, right? We've got to look mm-hmm. out for these bad ideas. So because that is unsustainable, because we can't always act like, what about Bob in the doctor's office where he talks about everything he's experiencing, he's afraid of everything happening to him. It becomes very tempting for us to begin to put filters over people in real life, not just on social media, but put buffers between us and people in real life because it's unsustainable to always be uncomfortable. So it becomes a matter Mm. of survival to have friends that agree with you and are just easy to be around Mm -hmm. rather than having friends who are different than you. And out of principle saying, I'm going to be a person who has a wide variety of friends. We're saying, no, I want friends who make me comfortable. I want friends who are like me and think like me. And then we have no capacity to be around people that aren't like us. Mm. So everything becomes fragile. Everything's pumped full of anxiety. Relational systems don't have the diversity and capacity that they once had. Man. Yeah. And so those are almost like two sides of the same coin. The two dimensions of this ripple that we're seeing is this like rise of social contagions and viral ideologies and anxiety just pervasively infusing the relational systems, which is all like all systems are relational. And so this should all, I hope, as we're talking about this, connect with part one. This is why you are experiencing that loss of capacity because there's anxiety in the system. This is why you feel lonely because the disconnection is the result of not feeling like you have the capacity to be in relationship with people who are more than just a little bit different from you. All of this is interrelated. And these are the dynamics of this liminal age that we're in. Yeah. So actually be encouraged that if you're feeling burdened, of course you are. Of course. That's exactly why I feel, I feel very encouraged right now, John, after talking about all that. (laughs) Well, listen, if you're full of anxiety, of course you are. If you're seeking Mm. ways to numb yourself, of course you are. That isn't coming from just the fact that you're doing that. You live in a system that's pumped full of anxiety and burdens and hypervigilance and your only result can be to either be anxious all the time or be Mm. apathetic or be hypervigilant. But, but there's really good news. And the good news is that we have an invitation that's extended to us right now in the moment that we're right in. And it comes not from our culture, not from this liminal age, but from Jesus who invites us all to come to him and rest. Now, this is what's amazing. During this this age that we're in, during this space, everyone can only offer a limited invitation of rest. But Mm. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all of you, all of you. Think about our cultural moment. He says, all of you 
who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not I'll show you where to find rest, but I will give you rest. Hmm. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's beautiful. Yeah. And what's I think most encouraging for me in that, John, is that when Jesus said that, we're going to not flatten the context here, right? He was saying that into a community and a people who at that time was experiencing a very in-between liminal age themselves. They were God's people in Israel, but they were told they have an emperor between them, between them and God. They had Caesar and that they had to obey Caesar. And that was in conflict. And they had a variety of different ways of trying to handle that tension. But in that tension, in that discomfort, in that anxiety, Jesus says, hey, you actually have access to a peace and to a comfort that does not require you to numb yourself. You actually have me, and that is a gift. And so, man, this has been good, even if it's been a little bit depressing, honestly, to like look very (laughs) honestly at the dynamics that we are hoping to engage further as a part of this podcast. But next week, we're going to get even more, well, we're not going to get even more uh, good news and comfort. We're going to make a really hard pivot in that direction, right? So part three of what it means to live in a liminal age, we're going to be asking the question, what the hell do we actually do with all this? <laughs> like this is, mm-hmm. this is a lot. And we ended with Jesus saying, come all you weary, because it is a lot. And we yes. want to ask the question, is it possible not just to survive is it possible to have something more than a scarcity mindset and to actually thrive in the midst of this? And we're going to talk about that more. And the short answer is yes, but we're going to have to change a little bit. We're going to have to see and think a little bit differently, and we're going to have to do a little bit differently. But that's what we're going to talk about next week, and we hope you join us. See you next time. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.